Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Kristen Ellard, PhD, is Assistant Professor in Psychology at Harvard Medical School and Director of Dimensional Neuroimaging Research at Massachusetts General Hospital Division of Neuropsychiatry. She completed her PhD in Clinical Psychology at Boston University under the mentorship of Dr. David Barlow and completed her clinical internship and postdoctoral fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital Harvard Medical School. She was developer and co-author of the Unified Protocol for Transdiagnostic Treatment of Emotional Disorders, a cognitive behavioral treatment designed to target emotion dysregulation across mood and anxiety disorders, which has now been translated into six languages. Dr. Ellard's research uses transdiagnostic dimension-based neuroscience and behavioral approaches to understand the roots of severe cognitive and effective dysregulation in neuropsychiatric disorders and to find more efficient and effective means to address this dysregulation through combined behavioral and neuromodulatory approaches such as transcranial magnetic stimulation and deep brain stimulation. She has received several foundation awards and two NIH National Research Service Awards for her research program, including most recently a fellowship award through the MGH and Brown University Joint Training Program in Recovery and Restoration of CNS Health and Function, and a mentored patient-oriented career development award from the NIMH. All right, Dr. Kristen Ellard, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it's so great to have you here today. And this is, I believe, the second time that we've been able to chat with each other. The first time being literally fresh off the heels of you having defended <laughs> your PhD thesis. I think it was quite literally the day before that you had done that. And then you flew to Ottawa to do a workshop on the Unified Protocol. Is that correct? Yes. I was on the heels of about 45 minutes of sleep the night before defending my dissertation. <laughs> so <laughs> it was quite an adventure. Yeah. Would never have known. The workshop was uh, wonderful. I know it really piqued my interest in the Unified Protocol. It's become one of my own kind of go-tos. So I'm so excited to have you here to talk about not only the Unified Protocol, but some of the work that you've been doing around the neurobiology of emotion and cognition, two areas that are really, really fundamental to my understanding of clinical psychology and the work that I do. So it's so great to have you here. Thanks again for coming. Thank you. We're speaking the same language. Those two areas are what drive and motivate all of my research in this area. So I'm happy to be here and talk about it. Wonderful. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about the Unified Protocol. Perhaps we could define it just to get everybody familiar with that who may not be familiar with it. And then I thought we could talk about why the Unified Protocol was developed. And before we hit record, we had talked a little bit about some of maybe even the philosophical underpinnings to the development of this protocol. So I'll turn it over to you, but I'd love to hear about, you know, just what is the Unified Protocol and and what's the origin story of this wonderful uh, tool that we have as clinicians? So yeah, so the, the Unified Protocol, broadly speaking, is a cognitive behavioral therapy, and it was developed to be able to uh, treat what sort of um, on an umbrella term would be emotional disorders, which is anxiety disorders and depression and somaticizing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it, it developed out of a response to, to really uh, a you know, decade or more of research that was focusing in on single disorders and developing protocols for single disorders. This was work that my mentor, uh, David Barlow, who is a you know, leading expert, obviously, in anxiety, 
had really devoted a lot of his research and time into really trying to understand these these specific disorders, specific anxiety disorders, and developing these you know um, cognitive behavioral therapy CBT protocols for these disorders. But then started to sort of think more about it, think more deeply about it, and the truth is. First of all, as we all know, as clinicians, when people come into your office, they they very rarely come in with one disorder. Typically, people come in with two, three, as many as six or seven disorders, and, and to be clear, meeting criteria for all of those disorders, the symptom criteria. So it begs the question, okay, if we have these protocols that treat all these specific disorders, but our patients are coming in with multiple disorders, what do you treat first? So that's the first sort of practical question. The second was the fact that a lot of these cognitive behavioral therapy protocols, single disorder protocols, had an effect on comorbid disorders as well, which says, well, there's some sort of common factors here. Do we really need to be focusing in specifically on each diagnosis? And then I think probably the biggest practical reality is as a, a clinician training, a training clinician, what in order to be an effective cl clinician, you would have to become an expert in, you know, 20, 30 different treatment protocols, which is not very uh, practical or efficient. So that was the initial thinking um, by Dr. Barlow, just sort of, can we do this more efficiently, I guess. But on a deeper sort of philosophical level, this is where he and I sort of came together. So <clears throat> the other question is, what are we really talking about when we say a disorder to begin with? Um, and I think that this is a really important question. And, and we can talk later about this too when we talk about the neurobiology, but I think it becomes even more critical, this question, when we talk about intervening on the level of neurocircuitry in the brain. What are we talking about when we talk about a disorder? Um, so to just sort of back up a little bit, uh, I came to clinical psychology. I actually was was going to be, <laughs> I thought I was going to study law and be an entertainment lawyer. And then I realized I'd be the worst lawyer ever because I would just want <laughs> everyone to get along. <laughs> so I was taking a philosophy course um, and it was a philosophy course in melancholia. And the, and the course traced this concept of mental disorder from you know, the, the earliest days of looking at humors, et cetera, all the way up into modern day. And the thing that struck me, there was a couple of things. First of all, this idea of mental disorder has been around since the dawn of, you know, hum humanity. So there's always been this sort of struggle um, between what we consider normal versus abnormal, uh, what we consider struggle versus health, right? Um, and what struck me is by the end of the course, it traced all the way through to, to modern times. And in, in the end of the story, it, you know, bringing us up to current day, it was all about psychiatry, it was all about medication. Um, and, that, and also about uh, different therapies that had evolved over the 20th century to treat mental disorders. And what really struck me about that part is that a lot of these treatments, uh, the majority of them, were sort of stumbled across serendipitously. So it wasn't like we were studying mechanisms, we discovered a mechanism and then an intervention was developed to target this mechanism. It was sort of like, well, that seems to work. <laughs> so let's keep going. Um, and, and I think the most shocking thing to me, because at the time, I think what was really uh, 
sort of in my my consciousness and in others' consciousness was this sort of epidemic of ADHD in children. Um, and the fact that all these children were being medicated. And it, and it was shocking to me that the longest longitudinal study of what these medications do to the developing brain was three months long at the time. Uh, so all of it seemed a little off <laughs> to me. Um, and then the other piece that emerged from that course was, was the idea of brain plasticity and understanding, you know, that we can literally sort of rewire our brains. Um, and a lot of this can be done through behavioral means, not necessarily through medications or other sort of interventions. Um, so taking all of that together, it really, for me, sort of lit a fire about, you know, can we, number one, better understand what we're talking about to begin with, um, what mental disorder is? Uh, can we, number two, step away from just throwing throwing things at the brain <laughs> and instead be more thoughtful about how we can sort of work with this idea of brain plasticity through behavioral interventions um, to essentially step away from being so dependent on medications that seemed, I mean, you know, medications have their place and are helpful, but are they the answer and are they really moving someone towards health ultimately? Um, so that really kind of started my curiosity about, you know, mental disorder and mental health interventions and also the professions, mental health professions. Uh, so from there, uh, for a thesis I had to do, I decided to understand how did psychiatry get to the top of the professional heap in health, you know, mental health providers. Um, and this led me down a, a, a very fascinating path because <laughs> um, at the time I was working at Harvard, so I had access to the Countway Medical Library, which is this treasure trove of all of the ancient sort of journals at the at the sort of birth of neurology and the birth of psychiatry. Um, you know, you can go and request these things, and they'll go down in the basement, bring this dusty old book up. You know, the pages falling apart, but you can, but but you can really understand what was the discourse at the time and contextualize it. Um, and and going through this exercise of trying to retrace the professional history of psychiatry really had an impact on, on me in, in the sense that I think we take for granted that, um, especially, you know, as a young trainee, you take for granted that sort of whatever the, the, the framing of disorders and intervention and everything is, is just ground truth. And that's what it is. So the diagnostic statistical manual is the Bible, right? That that's what it is. So the way that we define a disorder is ground truth. So depression is a thing and panic disorder is a thing and generalized anxiety disorder is a thing. Um, but when you go back in time and, and try and see where did this manual even come from, it really kind of reveals a different story. <laughs> and the story more has to do with um, really kind of professional insecurity. How did this profession of psychiatry uh, define itself? How did it become taken more seriously in sort of the medical professions? And one of the things it really needed was a way to, you know, a nosology, a way to diagnose, a way to classify. Um, and that's what the DSM is, is just, you know, a way to classify. It, it doesn't say anything about what the actual underlying biological mechanisms are or psychological mechanisms. 
Um, so it's not ground truth. <laughs> it's it's just sort of what has been constructed to give us a way to communicate. That's it, right? Um, so all of that thinking is what I came into Dr. Barlow's lab with. And it was, um, I, I applied to work with him because I, I read some work that he was doing and it was the same sort of questioning. So it was really questioning like, what are we talking about when we talk about diagnoses? What are we talking about when we talk about developing interventions? Um, so perfect home for, for this thinking. And I'm so grateful because I, I was able to have this training experience with him that a lot of it was hours and hours of philosophical conversation. What are we really talking about? What are we really dealing with here? So that was a long preamble, but I think it's important because I think it it um, it represents the freedom that we had to sort of step away from what what we had been doing in clinical psychology, which was focusing on you know trying to understand these um, DSM defined categorical diagnoses and sort of blow the whole thing wide open and, and rethink it. No, I really appreciate you providing all that context. I think it is. It does sound like you were able to sort of step out of the paradigm and almost say to yourselves, okay, if we weren't encumbered by this pre-existing framework, how would we understand this? How would we go about it? Right, exactly. I mean, and that's that's the nice thing about clinical psychology because you can you do have kind of the freedom to to bring a little bit of philosophy into it. But the thing that was interesting is like, I think the tension was, you know, still wanting to have what you could consider to be an evidence-based treatment um, but have it sort of more closely aligned to, to what we think might be going on for people that, you know, might be driving these disorders. So, so the unified protocol itself, um, to any kind of clinician would not, will not seem that much different from other cognitive behavioral therapies. It's organized in a similar way. You have different sort of, you know, sessions and homework that you go through. Um, the, the philosophy behind it, however, is, again, really trying to look at it through this lens. So if we wanted to step away from diagnosis, um, knowing the fact that our patients are coming in and they are not sort of expressing, here's this diagnosis is acting up today. <laughs> and, you know, last week I was having trouble with this diagnosis, you know, as if it's like my stomach is you know, my belly hurts this week and I have a sniffle next week or whatever. That's not how it happens. They walk in and all of it is happening for them at once. So how do we understand what that is and how do we target that um, within a CBT framework? So if you step back and really try and understand what is anxiety, what is depression, what, what are these disorders, what's going on for people? And I, I would extend that into you know, the, the bipolar disorders into, you know, substance use disorders, eating disorders, like what is going on, right? That is uh, expressing itself in this way. Um, and I should step back for a second too and say, you know, uh, Dr. Barlow had been working for years on this sort of framework, this um, triple vulnerability framework, um, which was, you know, obviously there's a biological underpinning. So people have varying degrees of, you know, just to simplify it, varying degrees of uh, sort of reactivity, you could say, you know, thresholds for reactivity. You then have various learning experiences. So 
for example, you know, children who are raised in environments that are unpredictable or uncontrollable tend to have more diffuse anxiety because they don't really know what to predict or expect. Um, and then you have the specific symptoms. And the way that he was looking at it is the specific symptoms, which is how we classify DSM disorders, are merely just surface reflections of, or, or sort of surface manifestations of these underlying processes. So it gets sort of fixated in one direction or another. Somebody might be more focused on social interactions and that's sort of how that anxiety is, is um, manifested. Or somebody might need, need to um, sort of arrange and control their environment, you know, in a, a sort of compulsive way. And that's how that's being manifested. Or somebody is, you know, constantly turning different scenarios over and over in their mind, either ruminating or worrying. And that's how, you know, so, so in other words, all of it sort of manifests in these different ways, um, but the underlying factors sort of cut across what the specific diagnoses end up being. So if you look at it from that perspective, what is that underlying thing, right? And I think the, the framework that allowed us to think about it is to step back in evolution and say, okay, how, like, what is normal? <laughs> what is adaptive? Right. Yeah. So if we think about mental disorder as a deviation from what is healthy and adaptive, right? Because that's the other thing, you know, the other sort of line of thinking at the time, I think they were uh, coming up with the DSM-5 and there was a lot of discussion about categorical versus dimensional, right? Because I think that's the other thing we realized, like everybody has anxiety. Everybody has, you know, down days, blue days. People can get a little compulsive sometimes, you know, all these things, it's not like a presence or absence. It's about how much is it interfering, right? So from that perspective, mental illness is sort of a deviation from whatever is adaptive functioning. Um, so in developing the protocol, we had a lot of, we spent a lot of time discussing what that is. What is adaptive functioning, right? Um, and I think you can look at it through the lens of our emotional lives, right? Because emotions are the way that we interact both with the outside world and with the internal world. That's the signal, right? And emotions are what organizes all of that, what you do at any given moment. Um, so what is an emotion? <laughs> um, and I heard you had Lisa Feldman Barrett, so I'm sure you, you had a rich discussion with her. She's been such a, a great thinker in this area of what is, you know, adaptive emotion. Um, I was very influenced by her work. Um, but, but when you really break it down, you think about it from, from those terms, um, you know, the capacity of humans to generate all of these different discrete emotions is incredible. The evolution preserved this ability for us to react and respond in these reflexive automatic ways that we don't even have to think about to ensure our survival. And through that lens, you know, thinking about not how do you get rid of anxiety or how do you get rid of depression or, or how do you get rid of sadness or any of these things or anger, but thinking about why do we have it in the first place? What is it supposed to be doing for us, right? So we start the protocol with that question and, and talking to patients about that. And I, I actually personally, just as an aside, I love the first session of the Unified Protocol because it you basically are saying, like, let's take all of your troubles, let's turn them on their head, and let's 
have a huge appreciation for how great it is that your human systems are working. Now they're not really helping you right now, but like you have them, right? And that's amazing, right? And and it's funny because I mean that can have a really positive impact on patients sort of from the outset. It's not you have this thing that's come from the outside and is affecting you. And it's it's that you have these systems. We might need to make some adjustments, but how amazing it is that we have them. So so we go through each of the discrete emotions. Um, and it's a really fascinating discussion, right? So what is the function of anxiety? Why do we have the capacity for anxiety in the first place? Um, and you know the answer, right? <laughs> to warn us of danger and threat. Yes. I mean, so, you know, how cool is it that our brain for us on our behalf, outside of even conscious awareness, it, our, our brain is always monitoring for things that are sort of unpredicted and unexpected, right? And that can be something that's a very, you know, clear stimuli or cue. It can even just be change in routine, right? That our brains are expecting certain things. And when, when that doesn't happen, it, it immediately alerts us, right? That we should pay attention. There might potentially be something that we need to pay attention to great right <laughs> um and same with all of the sort of discrete emotions and when you start thinking about them from the context of why would why would we have started to develop this back hundreds of thousands of years ago um it, it makes so much sense and it's and it's beautiful it's a beautiful design right <laughs> um i like to sort of say to patients like i feel like we're kind of halfway through evolution because we still have um, the only sort of constellation of responses that our body can do in response to, to sort of changes in our environment is fight or flight, which is like was great when we were, you know, <laughs> when we were hunter gatherers, right? Because that's what we needed. We needed to be able to run away. We needed to be able to respond um, and fight or flee or freeze or do these things. We don't need to do that in a meeting anymore, right? Right our brain is sort of undercooked in a sense, right? Like there's more to go, I think. And we might talk about this later, but I think it's interesting the way like things like SSRIs might work, right? Where they may transport us neurochemically into modernity where we have the luxury of having more passivity and, and being less sort of life, right. or, life or death about things. Right, yeah, because, because I think the thing that's so important um, is that, you know, at the way that the system was designed is so elegant and two main parts of it. One, that it um, is triggered automatically, right? You don't have to conjure up fear. You don't have to conjure up anxiety. I mean, you can, you know, we, you can also yes, you can. <laughs> create that. But in response yeah. to, to sort of a, you know, a, something in the moment, you know, that, that we, we just respond, our, you know, our brains detect and respond and, and we don't have to sort of intervene by thinking because thinking is slow. Um, but the other piece of this is that it was um, probably very efficient hundreds of thousands of years ago that if you detect something and you have an emotional response and fight or flight system gets triggered, that you don't sit there and question it, right? That you just believe it, you take it at face value and you run with it, right? Quite literally. Um, yes. and, and a lot of our struggles <laughs> today is that we still take it at face value. So if I feel you know, all of the signals of anxiety, the fight or flight signals, 
I can, I, I take that at face value. And I think something around here is threatening. I'm not sure what it is. It must be what that guy is thinking about me, or it must be, you know, that I didn't turn the oven off. Right. Because we, we are still designed to, to believe those signals as ground truth. Right. Um, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but just to, to kind of go back. So if you, if you start to look at emotions from that lens, that each of these emotions have a specific function and purpose, you know, anger helps you defend yourself. If someone's going to come from the neighboring clan and start taking your woolly mammoth meat, you better have something that you detect that you need to defend your resources, right? Um, same with sadness. I think sadness is the most interesting one because like sadness quite literally says one of your resources is gone. Like, you know, the guy in charge of hunting the woolly mammoth didn't come back, right? <laughs> Something's missing. Right? Um, and it quite literally makes you stop what you're doing, you know, instead of just continuing to move forward, reflect on what resource is now gone and, and sort of figure out how to replace whatever resource is missing. Wow simultaneously signaling to others that you're missing a resource and then they come to you to help try and provide that resource. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's amazing. It's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what a system, right? Um, Things like guilt and shame too. Right. So I always think of, and, and this may, this is just, you know, my hypothesizing. So this is not ground truth either. You know, you can think about fear and anxiety. Fear is sort of the fight, fight or flight for something that is present in front of you that um, is threatening your survival. Anxiety is, you know, the thought that the, the thing that's ambiguous out there, they're not, not sure what it is, might threaten your survival. So just pay attention and be prepared, right? And I, I think of um, shame and guilt in the same way. You know, shame is that I just did something and I probably shouldn't have because we can only survive in groups and that thing I just did might threaten my standing in the group and I might end up alone and I can't survive alone. So I better pay attention to that. And guilt being sort of the memory of that. Remember that thing that you did (laughs) that threatened your standing in the clan? Don't do it again, right? So all of these complex emotions have a function and a a purpose and the purpose is to preserve, you know, our survival. and so experiencing all of these emotions is adaptive, right? So great. That's a great place to start. <laughs> and then the question becomes, okay, well, how does it become maladaptive? What happens to make these emotional experiences become maladaptive? And as we, again, just to go back to the, the protocol, we were discussing this and thinking about this. So the first step is, well, what is an emotional experience to begin with? Um, it is a dynamic, interacting, ongoing computation, basically, between, you know, three main domains, one being physiological, you know, sort of the physiological visceral response, um, one being the sort of higher cognitive perceptual, what does this mean? You know, what memory do I have of this being here before? Um, what might this mean for the future? What what does this bring up for me? How do I how do I interpret and understand this? And then we have the behavioral response, the you know the motoric behavioral response, which you know also can be a you know internal sort of turning things around in your head response. Um, but you have the response, right? Um, and 
this was very much inspired by Lisa Feldman Barrett's work that these do not function in isolation. And so therefore we can never look at them in isolation. There isn't a place in the brain for cognition that operates in isolation from physiological responding or from behavioral responses. They all inform each other. So, <laughs> you know, you amp up the physiological, it changes the cognition, you change the cognition, it, you know, amps up or down the physiological, both will also drive the behavior. You engage in a certain behavior, it reinforces the physiological, which then reinforces the perceptual, you know, down to like posture, right? <laughs> which is very much the CBT model in a nutshell, right? We, we posit yeah. all these different elements of our experience. We, we look at them in isolation so we can land specific interventions, but the reality is, and the secret sauce is that the, the change travels throughout the whole network, even if you interact with one node. Exactly. And, and I think that that, you know, a good example of that is, is how difficult it is for people to get their heads around cognitive reappraisal. Some people get it right away, but other people, they have a real hard time with it because they're like, I know, I know what you're saying. I know that, you know, probably not unlikely that this will happen. I know I can probably survive, but I don't feel it. Right. And what is that? That's because of what we were talking about before, because the, the visceral physiological context is screaming something else. And we are designed to read that context and take that as true. So if my physiological state is on full on alarm, I don't care how many times I would try and tell myself everything's okay. Unless I address that level of alarm, you know, I, I, I'm struggling with it. Right. So, and it's really interesting too, just as an aside. So we had a lot of conversations about this, right. And, and you're right. This is the basic CBT model, you know, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, but it was really this idea that you cannot look at these in isolation, you know, that you can zero in on them to understand them, you know, each, but that you always have to understand how the other two are informing that. Um, and we had long discussions <laughs> about physiological states, right? Um, so basic CBT. So, so this protocol also is, you know, taking off of the years of research into basic CBT principles. So cognitive reappraisal and, you know, opposite action and, and things like that. The initial protocol um, reserved interoceptive awareness. So addressing the physiological state as part of exposures, which you would give to maybe people with panic disorder, but that's it. Right. Um, and we had some very heated discussions about why that can be the case. And um, I keep going back to Lisa Feldman Burt, but she was helpful in this argument to me because I could bring that to the table and say, listen. Um, and because the truth is, is the physiological part actually in some senses is the most important part, right? And it's behind all of the emotional experiences and it's informing all of the emotional experiences. So that piece has to be part of what is, what is focused on in all disorders. There's no emotional experience that doesn't have a physiological context, including sometimes the physiological context being blunted, right? But being blunted is still a signal. So, um, so that's hugely important. Um, so going back to all this, you know, how do we put all this together? So if we look at, here's the elements of emotional experience, and we have to look at it, not in isolation, but how does something from the outside or inside world 
trigger this first initial emotion response. Um, that is always, always adaptive. So the first response that we get, the automatic one, the one that our brain detects and fires, is never maladaptive because that means the system's working, right? So if I detect ambiguity and my fight or flight system gets activated, that's not wrong because, you know, at that moment in time, your brain doesn't really know what's going on in the outside world and it's and it's preparing you just in case. So that's great, right? Because maybe there is a threat, we don't know. But it's where you go next that becomes a problem. So, and this is where the other, you know, domains come in. That initial emotion triggers a, a physiological visceral response um, that pulls because of associative learning, because this is another really, really fundamental, important part from evolution, right? That we learn from experiences. So if you have a strong emotional experience that gets encoded in memory, the next time you encounter something similar, that memory gets primed and it's that oh, that's right, when I feel this, it means this about me and I do this thing, right? Super helpful and efficient from an evolutionary standpoint, right? Because it says, remember that trail you went down and then there was that bush over there and there was that predator in the bush and then you had to run away? Next time you go there, be careful <laughs> and be on the lookout, right? Great, that's hugely helpful. Unfortunately for us in, in the modern world, the types of associations that get encoded into memory oftentimes were helpful at one point in time, but maybe aren't helpful anymore. So for example, if somebody says something critical to me and it triggers anxiety or it triggers fear, perhaps it uh, triggers the fight or flight system. And I interpret that context and that response as I'm about to get hit or I'm about to get yelled at or something really bad is about to happen to me, right? Um, and then I go into a pattern of I need to avoid or I need to walk away or I need to overcompensate or I need to do something because something really bad is happening, right? Um, that might've been adaptive when I was six and living with my alcoholic father who, when I got ambiguous signals could mean that I was in danger and that something bad might be coming. When I'm in my annual review with my boss who says, you did this thing wrong, he's not gonna hit me. But my body doesn't know that, right? And my memories don't know that, right? And so I have to create this whole world around that, right? Cause I'm having that response. I sense threat. So what do I do with that threat? I'm a terrible worker. I, you know, I've done everything wrong. I'm going to lose my job. Something terrible is going to happen, right? And you start this whole trajectory that, that very, very quickly in the matter of milliseconds goes from a normal detection of potential threat to I am now completely incompetent. I'm going to lose my job. I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. Now I'm feeling stuck, now I'm feeling depressed, now I'm shutting down, right? <laughs> so that initial response was still adaptive because all it's saying is this could be threatening, but all the stuff that comes after is learned. And all the stuff that comes after is likely encoded in a totally different context in a totally different time. 
and is no longer applicable. But because we have these emotion systems that are, are designed to work quickly and efficiently and just to pull on associated meanings, that's what comes to the forefront. So what is a unified protocol? <laughs> now that I've said all this <laughs> long-winded stuff, it literally, quite literally, is just saying, let's go moment to moment. Let's unpack. So when, when you have this sort of uh, event or something triggers, either from the outside world or, or internal, where do you go with it? What's the very first response that you had? And we can sort of in session draw this out. This was my first response. Adaptive or maladaptive? Adaptive, right? But then what happened? Well, then I had this thought. And when you had that thought, what happened to the physiological piece? Well, it increased. So then when it increased, what happened in the thought and what happened in the behavior? And where did you go with it? Um, and you start to see that people have very sort of um, thematic, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they have patterns that repeat themselves over and over again. And usually they're just, you know, this sort of um, constellation of responses that just keep coming up and coming up and coming up. So treatment is really about saying, what are those associations between these specific discrete emotions that get triggered and where you take it? And how can we start to unpair those and introduce new associations? Um, so I think by rooting it from that and, and really talking about it in not general terms, like on average, I feel anxiety and on average, I feel this. And on average, I believe this about myself, literally saying, let's look at the system in action, <laughs> right? Moment to moment to moment. How is this unfolding? Um, and it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating for, for patients too, to see this. And as you sort of draw this out, it's like, wow, how did I go from here to over here? And so fast, right? Um, and and it's so it's just about identifying that and then through learning different skills, and this is where the, the, the core CBT skills are helpful, learning things like reappraisal, opposite action, things like that. But in the context of understanding that you're trying to unpair these associations, um, and, and repeating it over and over again until you have new associations in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of backstory there, but I really, really appreciate you going through that because I think it helps me as a clinician to understand how deep the model actually goes and penetrates into our evolutionary past and is sitting on sort of bedrock as far as that goes. And I think explaining that to clients is really helpful in terms of them buying into why we're doing what we're doing. Like it just makes sense, right? Like the car runs this way because the engine looks like this. This is why we have to repair this piece or you know whatever metaphor you wanna use. So I think that's, right. that's really important. I did wanna throw out two book recommendations in addition to looking at the Unified Protocol, which I suggest everyone listening to the podcast check out. Uh, there's a book uh, called Good Reasons for Bad Feelings by Dr. Randy Nessie. He's an evolutionary psychiatrist. Has a really, really good... I think narrative and, and commonsensical approach to the evolutionary history of our emotional lives. And then also some of the historical things you were talking about, Anatomy of an Ep Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. Uh, that's also a very interesting book yes. around the history of psychiatry and some of those uh, historical legacy issues that we're still grappling with today. Yeah, he, he has a few excellent books out, uh, is a very good critical thinker. Um, and let me be clear, I'm not bashing the field of psychiatry because no. you know, the field of psychiatry is rich and it's more just, um, again, how we're, how we're organizing our thinking around how we approach 
um, mental disorder and just pushing back on that and saying, you know, is this, is this the best we can do? You've answered a number of questions in laying out the background. So I'll just maybe triage in a few things here uh, that are really of interest to me. Kristen, based on your knowledge of the brain, and you have quite a background in, in neuroscience and neuroimaging, is there one theoretical orientation or maybe approach in psychology? So for example, like CBT, psychoanalytic, ACT, EFT. And again, some of these are under broader umbrellas we could group together, but I think you get the general idea. Is there is there an approach, or maybe perhaps you believe the unified approach is that approach? Is there one model that most closely matches the way in which the brain actually works in terms of processing, making predictions, reacting to things? Is there a best fit there from your lens? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that each of these are elements of a best fit <laughs> in a way, <laughs> not to be you know cryptic, but if we want to start with, you know, what do we think is going on in the brain? And again, I, I referring to like the 20th time to Lisa Bob and Barrett's work. And I would really recommend her work to, to think about this. And um, she did a lot of sort of um, writing about this idea of how the brain is sort of, coming up in a computational way with experience. Um, from that standpoint, I think understanding this dynamic exchange is super important, right? And, and also understanding the plasticity is, is really important. So to kind of answer your question, um, I mean, certainly I can speak to, to what the Unified Protocol is trying to do by taking this sort of moment to moment, is trying to understand, trying to, to sort of express through you know, words and behavior, what these computational patterns are for a specific person and where we might need to sort of alter those patterns and thereby forge new pathways um, in sort of automatic responding. I think things like, you know, um, like uh, psychodynamic therapy is sort of asking people to, to, to um, uncover those patterns right, and uncover some of the more automatic reflexive patterns. And I think there's value in that and sort of bringing that into consciousness. And in many ways, that's what the Unified Protocol is trying to do as well. It's like bring, what, what is the origin of this? And, and really, you know, in a nutshell, like this is, this is how I am reacting, responding, but, but is it really to do with now? Um, and then I can think, I, you can take something like ACT, which is really focusing on the, let's bring it into now. So really focusing on this is your experience, but rather than, you know, sort of getting lost in your experience and, and continuing to act sort of reflexively, why don't you take an observ observational stance on it, um, in which case you're allowing it to be there, but you're, you're opening the lens to what is actually happening around you. Um, and I think by proxy, that likely has some, you know, um, some exposure elements to it. So that likely is also forging new pathways just by having to sort of sit and be in contact and not engage in, you know, the reflexive response um, and, and having alternate responses. Um, I'm not as familiar with EFT. I know what it is, but, but I imagine if it's emotion focused therapy <laughs> and you're evoking emotions, it likely is doing the same thing. It's taking, you know, sort of the automatic reflexive making it more conscious um, and situating it more in sort of the here and now. Um, so I think, um, as I said, like, I think all of these therapies are sort of tapping into it in different ways. Um, what I think is probably most important to be changing is 
is understanding, you know, that at the core, this is what the brain is doing. So the brain is not functioning on a time scale of on average or over months and weeks and years. The brain is functioning moment to moment. So I think taking those frameworks and really trying to understand experience from that time scale maps it more closely to the brain, if, if you will. Oh, thanks for that answer. That's so interesting. And it's got my brain going in a million different directions. <laughs> I, I want to ask you another question that I appreciate maybe there may be no easy answer or, and it might pull us into some sort of philosophical realm, but I want to run it past you anyway. You, you know, based on what you know about the brain, is there any adequate way of describing how unconscious processes are, are deliberated about? So specifically, uh, if activity in the brain is not always experienced consciously through some kind of verbal articulation, how are calculations with respect to threat, attraction, preferences, things like that? How are these rendered? Like, is the unconscious a series of computations almost like that we could model mathematically? And then there's the conscious awareness in which it's translated into a verbal and emotional awareness. Again, I appreciate that's probably an enormous question, but yeah. I've been doing a lot of deep dives on depth psychology and things like that. And mm-hmm. I am like, you know, shadow work, things like that. The idea that there's parts of yeah. ourselves that are the invisible hand that are influencing us. And if they're, and if they're yeah. not doing it with conscious language, how are they doing this? I'm fascinated by this. You're, you're going to take me out of my um, area of expertise because my my realm of neuroscience has still been very focused on um, just emotion systems and emotion cognition systems in relation to, to mood and anxiety. However, you know, I can just say and, and I would um, I would direct, you know, any of your interested readers into this world of, you know, cognitive neuroscience looking at visual systems. And I think that's a really uh, fascinating window, if you will, no pun intended, into into what you're talking about, because what we, you know, what is known in visual systems is that there are many aspects of visual systems that are, you know, activated doing these sort of computations um, completely outside of conscious awareness, that you don't need conscious awareness for for these sort of, you know, stimulus response patterns and, and perceptual, um, you know, computations to occur. So, it, I think it's an understudied area, and I know there's a lot of people diving into this um, idea of consciousness. What is consciousness? That I think will get us closer to that, because I think to your point, again, you know, there there has been attention paid in visual systems, you know, and visual systems having sort of coordinated response with salience, you know, salient systems, et cetera, but not sort of higher order cognition. Um, probably the same in, in other things like reward motivation type processes, right? Um, or, or sort of, you know, fear-based processes, avoidance-based processes, like all of these sort of um, different levels of computation are likely happening, right? And, and why wouldn't they? I think that it's funny because our consciousness is sort of, it's a proxy for how I think we view ourselves as human to begin with in the world, right? That we're special. Right. That we <laughs> that we have this sort of special information, you know, that that the rest of nature doesn't have. Um, you know, we the, the idea of the ego is, I mean, it's a great descriptor, right? We, our egos are huge. <laughs> so, the other way to look at this question is if you if you look at all the things that happen in nature, right? That just seemed like how does that happen, right? Um, without any sort of like explicit consciousness, but they're happening. Why would we think as humans that we're not having this a similar experience or that nature hasn't designed us in a similar way, right? Exactly. 
you know, and I think, again, going back to your question about different therapies, you know, that's where, you know, psychodynamic therapy gets a bad rap for, you know, from the CBT world. But I mean, it's fascinating if you uncover some of these, you know, subconscious inner workings that, you know, are completely out of awareness. Well, I think what's really interesting is, and I believe there's data on this, when CBT trained therapists go to do their own therapy, they don't often frequently select CBT as their as their own intervention. Mm-hmm. They, they, they tend to orient towards more <laughs> EFT or dynamically related uh, therapies because I, yeah. think, I think intuitively there's a sense when you work day in, day out with this stuff that there's like, wow, there's something something very substantial going on beneath the surface that's probably influencing me. And I want to get a real handle on that. Right. Well, and, and so it's really interesting. Um, the unified protocol, we did a um, workshop at, I, I can't remember the acronym now, SEPI, I think it was, but it was, it was a, a psychotherapy conference and it was primarily psychodynamic dynamic, um, clinicians in the audience. And it was, it was funny because it was a sort of like a, you know, arm folding, like skepticism about, you know, what is this CBT thing? And at the end, we realized we were doing much, much of the same kind of work, just coming at it a little bit differently. So, you know, what I was talking about earlier, if you want to really understand how does somebody's, what's the first initial triggered emotion, and then where does somebody take it? A lot of that is subconscious, you know, a lot of, you know, what, what makes me go there? Where did that come from? You know, and and I find myself as as the clinician working with this protocol, you know, doing that sort of like, you know, what are the roots of this? And what do you think is driving that response? Right. So it's not always sort of CBT in the moment. Let's keep it in the moment. Let's do the skills. You know, it, it's kind of an uncovering of what are the, re, you know, the reflexive associations, which I, I would argue is pretty psychodynamic. <laughs> Absolutely. Feel free to reference the unified protocol. It may be in answering this if it's relevant, but again, based on your knowledge of neuroscience, are there some elements of the CBT model that provide more bang for the buck in terms of their effectiveness or, you know, generating change? I like really like the example you referenced before, and I've had the same experience where you'll do thought records with people and yes, they kind of intellectually get it. And then they, they have that response, like you said, where it's like, yeah, but I don't really feel any different. And so for that reason, I have always veered towards behavior because to me, behavior is very powerful for a number of reasons. It generates new data. It's experiential. I think there's a physical tie into it. I could go on and on, but also a big fan of the unified protocol as well. And behavioral change is very much stressed within that protocol for reasons that are that you've laid out and I think really resonate. So anyway, from your perspective, you know, knowing how the brain works, knowing how it makes predictions about reality rather than detecting reality, things like that. Are there elements that you think should be emphasized in good therapy, regardless of the maybe the intervention or the style of therapy somebody's doing? It's an interesting question. I'm going to give you a a non-empirical answer. Well, semi-empirical answer. How about that? So I work with bipolar patients. Um, and in my work with bipolar patients, I started to really appreciate how important the visceral context is, the physiological context. It's the stage that's set that everything else plays out on. And, and I think that maps very closely to the brain, right? Because our salience detecting circuitry, you know, that's, that's the radar, that's the antenna, you know, that's always active. And if you look at, again, adaptive functioning, adaptive functioning means I detect something, I mount a preparatory response, I then 
alert the higher cognitive, you know, resources to sort of weigh out, given my goals in this moment, given what I know about this in the past, what do I do? (laughs) Do I ignore it? Do I act on it? Whatever. I'm oversimplifying all this, by the way, obviously. But but I think when you think on the level of neurocircuitry, when you really look at, you know, something like this concept of motion regulation, that seems to be what's going on. And when you see you know, where things are going awry, it's when the sort of, you know, salient circuitry and the sort of, you know, frontal parietal control circuitry are, you know, not necessarily dynamically interacting in, in, in a way that's adaptive or healthy, right? So from that framework, um, thinking about this idea of salient signaling, I think it gets overlooked in CBT a lot. Um, that Again, I think what you're tapping into with behavior change is that the the actual motoric change, right, sends in the moment signals to the brain. And if you think about how things interact dynamically, and, and if you think about the brain as constantly doing this sort of computation, if you change your posture, suddenly your, your physiological state changes, right? Um, I mean, we can feel that now if you lean back in your chair and you open up your arms notice how you know your physiological state changes in an instant um thoughts are the slowest right so thoughts are the hardest to move um because thoughts are taking signals from the behavior and the motoric and and the visceral and the physiological right um we talked about that before that's efficient we're supposed to be reading all that so I'm finding that in just, you know, this is the non-empirical part, in my clinical work, I go to the physiological first, always. So what is your physiological context in this moment? So if it's, you know, if you're tense and activated and your autonomic arousal is high, let's start by bringing that down, either through a posture change or diaphragmatic breath to bring parasympathetic online. Let's change the, the context first. Then let's look at the thoughts, what's going on? And you know, what's the likelihood? Where do you think this is coming from? All of that. Because if you're trying to do that work and, and the visceral context is you know, on nine, <laughs> the thoughts are gonna be on nine. If you bring it down, then it's easier to access that change. Um, and what's interesting about this to me and where it maps onto my you know, neuroscience work and, and now my work in neuromodulation is when we think of something like bipolar disorder, what is happening there? So there's something that is causing the, the sort of visceral physiological state to go in one direction or the other. Um, and you can sort of think about it like a, a thermostat. So in healthy adaptive functioning, we are able to, you know, if you are healthy, um, you know, if, if you think about a thermostat, you set a thermostat at 70 degrees, right? If it goes above 70 degrees, the AC kicks on. If it goes below 70 degrees, the heat kicks on. Um, and, and something analogous is happening for us in, in sort of a healthy brain, right? That if I get really overactivated, there's something that can kick in to calm it back down. If I get really, really closed in and lethargic, there's something that kicks in that gives me the motivation to get out of bed, right? Um, so what is that? Right. Um, And and I've been really fascinated by, you know, what bridges the sort of salience 
systems that are, are giving the visceral, visceral context and the higher order kind of cognitive functions that are allowing me to make decisions about how I react and respond. Um, and in bipolar disorder, what seems to happen is that you, you get into one mode and, and that, you know, the AC never kicks on or the heat never kicks on, right? You're just there until you burn out, right? right? Um, and then and then you crash into the other direction, right? So, um, so I've been really fascinated with, you know, how do we sort of map all this together? So first of all, using something like the unified protocol to help people to understand moment to moment and monitor moment to moment that, you know, my urge to buy all of the, the antique book collections on Amazon right now is that how I would feel if my visceral state was in a calmer state? Would I make that same decision? Or how much of this is being motivated by the fact that I'm charged up right now, right? And so what can I do to calm that down? Um, would I make the same decision if I wasn't in this visceral context? Can I change my posture to relax myself down, to get in a less agitated state, et cetera, et cetera? I did a trial of the unified protocol in bipolar and anxiety, and it was really helpful for a, a, you know, a handful of these patients. And the handful of patients that it was helpful for were the ones that still were able to access whatever that is that allows you to sort of draw it down. Um, what I'm focusing on now is can we use neuromodulation to enhance that circuitry, that regulatory circuitry for those patients that are outside that window. Um, and we could get into a whole discussion about, you know, where, where I'm hypothesizing that is, but basically, you know, where you sort of um, look at how you integrate the sort of salient signaling, the visceral piece with the higher order cognitive piece and sort of targeting that circuitry that helps you sort of um, integrate those two functions um, in, in a more healthy way to move it back closer to adaptive functioning. So that was a long-winded answer to your question again, but, but, you know, I, I think that, that, that visceral piece is, is really important. You know, I know we're short on time, but I wanted to just throw in a couple of other quick observations before we move on to that. Yeah, of course. Um, just, just that number one, you know, what I've learned in working with these bipolar patients from this perspective goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, experience and what mental illness is versus diagnosis. And, you know, it has been really powerful to see people be able to step outside of their diagnosis. And, you know, especially in a, in a, in a disorder like that, where, where the label is given like a, a sentence, like you are now bipolar, um, being able to sort of have people understand better how their emotion systems are working is powerful and, and has been powerful to sort of, you know, bear witness to. So I think that's worth mentioning sort of, you know, back to our earlier discussion about rethinking, you know, what, what is mental disorder to begin with? And then the other just brief comment I was going to make is I think when you do think about how do we intervene on the brain now that we have these tools of neuromodulation, um, that, that gives us even more imperative to, to start, to step away from thinking about, um, diagnostic categories and categorical symptoms and really understand what is the functional, you know, what is the underlying function that um, supports adaptive health and where is that deviating and how do we intervene on that directly? So 
just want to throw that in there. <laughs> no, that's a great point. That That's exactly what came up for me as you were talking about that, where say with bipolar disorder, what you're talking about is an extension of processes that are all of our brains engage in. We're talking about differences in right. degree, not kind. So to call somebody bipolar, uh, there's so many problems with that, but it, it just does not do justice to the dimensional and, and adaptive underpinnings of these processes that we artificially pathologize by some sort of cutoff that we arrived at by consensus in a room somewhere. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you a question that came about uh, both in a conversation that I had with Joseph Ledoux as, as well as in the context of reading his books where he really feels that a sense of self is required to experience emotions in the way that humans talk about emotions. And he's made the point that one of the reasons why SSRIs and other antidepressants may have failed us on some level relative to our expectations is that they largely interface at the level of the limbic system where those uh, certain type of 5-HT or serotonin receptor is. It might sort of dampen some of the fight or flight activity that happens in lower areas of the brain. And we careful with language as per Lisa Feldman Barrett's discussion about this. So it, there's lots of ways to trip up, but why am I bringing this up? Well, I think there's some really interesting data emerging about the impact that psychedelics can have on mood, anxiety, trauma, things like that. They tend to occupy 5-HT2A receptors, which are mostly in the cortex, could potentially and theoretically be more involved in that sense of self. The default mode network is one of the things that gets disrupted when someone ingests a psychedelic. So appreciate that's a little bit of a ramble there, but did you have any thought on, you know, even if you've been keeping sort of maybe a very peripheral awareness of what's going on with mm -hmm. the psych psychedelic literature about how this ties into your understanding of the brain, emotion, cognition, things like that? Yeah, I think it's such a fascinating field. And I think the best way for me to conceptualize it is it takes the blueprint and it shreds it and and gives you a new one because <laughs> we are you know the way that we understand ourselves in the world is based on this blueprint that is sort of developing from our earliest earliest experiences right because we have a, a limit to what we can filter in we have a limit to, to how much i mean if you think about how much is in your field of vision right now right and how much you are just not looking at because it's not relevant to what you're doing right now, right? So you're not processing it. And so we all have these blueprints that that evolve over our lifetime that tell us this is important. Bring this into your perceptual awareness, map it onto all your memories and everything that you know about yourself in the world and pay attention to that. The rest of it, ignore it, right? And I think what psychedelics do in, in, a, in a sense is all of a sudden all these other things <laughs> start to come into awareness. Um, and, and I think it, it gives an opportunity to, to take that blueprint. And, and really, I think what is, you know, and again, this is just me wildly hypothesizing. This is not based on any science <laughs> at all. But when you hear people talk about how, you know, like the traumatic experiences that have colored their entire lives are suddenly just you know, either gone or just looked at completely differently. I think that that's probably what's happening, right? Is that, you know, trauma, trauma really crystallizes a blueprint, right? It really drives how you're moving around and, and, and perceiving things to, to get a respite from that, even momentarily has to be completely, you know, altering, right? And all of a sudden you have this whole possibility that there are other things out there. 
the big question in my mind, and again, I think we there's a lot of work to do is how long does that last? So, you know, how quickly does the old blueprint sneak back up and say, no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> but I think at least in the moment, and you know, I could hypothesize that that's probably what's going on and how we filter and process all the multitude of, of stimuli that, you know, internal and external stimuli, how we decide what we allow in consciousness matters. Um, and I think defines the self, you know, what is the self, you know, this is, this is who I am. And he, these are the experiences that, you know, I pay attention to. Um, and I think psychedelics just blows that up. <laughs> that That's my reading of it as well. I remember listening to a podcast recently where the, I think it was David Nutt was talking about how, you know, your brain basically goes back to being able to play with connections that it hasn't been able to play with since you were an infant or yes. a toddler. Yes. And, and, and some yeah. of the sensory disturbances that go on is that, you know, you see the colors and this, that, and the other thing that's, you're getting the sort of first principles view of how your brain constructs visual information. And it's able to sort of, you know, route it to different cortical areas in a way that it would never normally do in your adult crystallized brain. So I think that's exactly right. aligned with what you're, what you're speculating around there. Right. And, you know, cause I mean, if you think about, you know, object perception, for example, you know, because people talk about how, you know, objects change shape and form and all this sort of thing. Well, this is another, you know, example of us taking things as ground truth, right. That, right. you know, this cup of coffee looks like this, right. But <laughs> that's because I've experienced it in this way. I actually don't even know what it looks like to you, to be honest. I'm just assuming, you know, because it's only my eyes that are seeing it. So I've organized my perception of even objects in a, in a specific, unique way to me. So <laughs> to your point, if I can get rid of that, you know, blueprint, what would it look like? I don't know. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Kristen, I want to give you the last word. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I wish we had four hours in all honesty. There's so many little <laughs> threads we, we could pull on. Uh, I want to give you the last word. Is there a message or uh, a finding or an insight that you want to leave uh, the audience? And then maybe as a part B, where can people find uh, you if they're interested in learning more about the research that you do? I'll just share like my personal thing. And, and, and this is not, you know, telling people what they should do. But I think for myself, keeping that fascination of, of us and human experience embedded in nature and, and keeping this curiosity and not getting hijacked by what literally are social constructions of how we understand ourselves really helps me understand, you know, my patients, understand the science, understand the questions better. Having that just sort of humility, humility that we don't know. There's so much we don't know. And there's so much we can learn from, you know, this sort of natural world that we're in. Um, so I don't know if that's advice or just reflection or what, but, but I think that's what sort of drives all the work that I'm doing and trying to, you know, humanize all of this um, and, and step away from, you know, just following a pattern because it's there. That's really beautiful. I love that. And if people want to learn more about your research, where would you direct them to? Uh, we have a website that's still <laughs> in production, um, but I can be found. I'm at uh, Mass General Hospital currently in the uh, program of neuropsychiatry and neuromodulation. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I really sincerely hope that we get a chance to uh, to chat again. Thanks so much. I've learned so much today and it's really invigorated some of my passions around the Unified Protocol of Neuroscience and whatnot. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You are very welcome. Take good care. You too. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. 
If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.